Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. After attending two government committee meetings, an FDA Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee meeting on COVID boosters and an Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices meeting on monkeypox vaccines, physician and activist Dr. Meryl Nass is back with an update on what she calls the dirty vaccine wars. In this interview, she describes the various ways the U.S. government has been and continues to engage in activities tantamount to massive fraud, waste, and abuse. Engaging in fraud includes making false representations of facts, making false statements, or concealing information. Waste can include thoughtless or careless expenditure, mismanagement, or abuse of resources to the detriment or potential detriment of the U.S. government. Dr. Nass, who has successfully treated many COVID patients with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and who exposed large-scale corruption in the suppression of chloroquine drugs for treating COVID, is currently fighting to regain her medical license, which was suspended not because she mistreated any patients or any patients complained about her, but for, quote, disseminating COVID misinformation, close quote outside of her medical practice as a private citizen. Dr. Nass is an internist with special interest in vaccine-induced illnesses, chronic fatigue syndrome, Gulf War illness, fibromyalgia, and toxicology. She serves on the Children's Health Defense Scientific Advisory Board. The stated mission of the Children's Health Defense, a nonprofit, is to end childhood health epidemics by working aggressively to eliminate harmful exposures, hold those responsible accountable, and to establish safeguards to prevent future harm. Dr. Nass also writes a COVID newsletter that can be found on merylnass.substack.com. Welcome, Merrill. Hi, Christina. You attended a couple of very interesting meetings. One of them was the FDA Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee meeting on COVID boosters. And then you attended another one, an Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices meeting on monkeypox before that. So could you talk about what you learned and what went on at those meetings. Let's start with the monkeypox meeting. What was claimed was that the vaccine was perfectly safe. The Genios vaccine, which is the new monkeypox vaccine that no one ever heard of before. Um, if you'd like me to give you background on that. Yes, please. I, I'd love to. Okay. So small, the, first, uh, Western, the first Western smallpox vaccine was developed uh, in I think 1797 by uh, Dr. Jenner. And he had noticed uh, that women who worked with cows didn't seem to be getting smallpox. And he decided to use that there was a disease called cowpox and he could inoculate people with the material from the pox, which, which contained virus. And that would uh, essentially vaccinate them against smallpox. And he did this to a child and then exposed that child to smallpox. So this is a doctor who did something very unethical, uh, took a nine-year-old boy and uh, exposed a poor boy and exposed him to smallpox and he didn't catch it. Now, he didn't actually invent this. Um, this process, procedure of taking the pus from animal pox and 
um, rubbing it in the nose or scratching it on the skin had been uh, brought to England by, um, I think, Lady Montague from Turkey, and it had been used in Asia for some time. Um, so before 1797, remember, we had the Revolutionary War and George Washington, after a lot of people were lost in the United States during the war, soldiers um, ordered variolation of the troops. So that was a few years before Jenner. And basically, we have been using a, a, what was considered a very dirty vaccine made from the pus of uh, calves' bellies ever since. Uh, and I received that vaccine twice, once at birth, after birth, and once in 1972 when I went to Africa. Now, that was considered the most, there weren't that many vaccines back then, but it was considered the most dangerous vaccine. It was acknowledged that it killed one in a million children. It was also acknowledged that it could spread from the area where the lesion was created. It was scratched onto your skin. It was not injected. It was too dangerous to be injected. Um, it, there was live a live virus and people who were immunocompromised or had eczema or certain other skin conditions could, could get a generalized disease that could be very severe from the vaccine, not from smallpox. Now, the last US epidemic of smallpox um, occurred in the late 1940s. It was brought in from Mexico and you know people were quickly vaccinated. Most people were vaccinated anyway, and it went away. And there wasn't any more smallpox in the United States after that. There were pockets of it in Africa and in, in Asia, South Asia. And um, a program was initiated through the UN with multiple countries performing what was called ring vaccination. So wherever there were smallpox cases, they went to that area, vaccinators who were not necessarily doctors and vaccinated people with, with the existing vaccines which were donated by multiple countries, including the US and Russia. And by doing so over a period of um, several years, maybe 10 years, um, smallpox was wiped out in 1997, wiped off the face of the earth. The United States had stopped vaccinating citizens routinely for it years before because like, uh, you know, like, because it was a dangerous vaccine, we didn't have any smallpox. Now, soldiers continued to get vaccinated for a while, but eventually that stopped. Once people stopped being vaccinated, there arose a concern within the US government that what if smallpox returns and we have an unvaccinated population? This could be very dangerous. Um, that um, drumbeat got louder during the Bush administration after 9-11, um, and in 2003, they started vaccinating soldiers for smallpox. Um, even though still no smallpox. There wasn't any smallpox. So uh, supposedly the smallpox was kept in vials in one place in the Soviet Union and in the CDC in Atlanta. And those were supposedly the only two places that had smallpox. But if you can remember the smallpox blanket story, which is true, uh, the British did give the Indians smallpox infected blankets and materials at Fort Pitt in the 1760s during the French and Indian War, because there's a letter discussing this that exists in the British Museum. Um, it's possible that you can have dried pox that can you know, reanimate. 
Um, so it's a concern, but there haven't been any more smallpox cases. Well, in 1958, this condition called monkeypox was apparently first discovered, first time in the world, um, in monkeys that had been brought to the United States for experiments. We, we use a tremendous number of monkeys <laughs> from uh, Asia and India and Africa. And um, we've used them for many. In fact, the live the polio vaccines, I believe, are still being made in monkey kidneys. They certainly were up until about 2000 in the United States. Um, remarkable to think about it, that our, that vaccines could still be made from monkeys that have to be killed and their kidneys extracted. So anyway, the United States decided that smallpox, that we shouldn't run out of smallpox vaccine, but they also uh, decided we should get rid of the old supply, even though it, it was the old supply was tested in 2003 and or to right, you know, after 9-11, when, when we we're getting ready to have our Iraq war number two and was found to be effective. In fact, it could be diluted to 20% of the original dose and it was still working. So we had this old vaccine, but it was decided we should get a new vaccine that would be hopefully, the plan was safer. So instead of having this mix of, of viruses and other junk from the calves' bellies, which was called the New York Department of Health strain, um, one virus was selected from that mix and was grown. And that became a vaccine called ACAM 2000. And uh, Tommy Thompson and the Bush administration said, we're gonna have a dose for every American. So they bought, they contracted for 300 million doses. So this was a very good, um, boondoggle for new companies that were springing up in the biodefense field at that time. And I got this huge contract, um, uh, ACAM 2000. Now, it turned out, even though they had just selected one virus from the original mix, it wasn't actually any safer than the old virus. It caused quite a lot of myocarditis. And this is now acknowledged by the CDC, believe it or not, one person in about 160 who got this vaccine could de develop myocarditis if you actually looked for it. One in 160, that's a huge number. Um, that's way more than anyone has claimed. That's at least 10 times more than the study with the most cases of myocarditis from COVID vaccines wow. in, in young men. So, there was also a study done um, with that vaccine at Walter Reed, and um, they looked at over a thousand soldiers who got the vaccine and found that one in 220 developed a, an obvious case of myocarditis with symptoms, but one in 30 actually had elevation of cardiac enzymes to more than two times the upper limit of normal, which means they had subclinical myocarditis. Their heart was inflamed, but they weren't having noticeable arrhythmias or chest pain, and they weren't passing out. Um, but one in 30. And that's the same rate that an earlier study from 40 years earlier had shown in Finland in soldiers when they were looking at them and looking at EKG changes, one in 30 were likely to be developing cardiac inflammation. Okay, so two, 2003 comes around and the Bush administration says, 
we want to vaccinate the country, ideally, for smallpox. I don't know what they knew then, because these studies, since they produced that vaccine, these studies have been published years later. Okay, so the, the, the CDC now will tell you that one in 150 something people gets myocarditis from AKM 2000, but that's not what they said then. They decided to give this vaccine to the country, but they were gonna do it in stages and they were gonna start with first responders, doctors, nurses, and, and military. How can they do that knowing that it has such a high adverse events rate? Well, we don't know what they knew then because it's like today. They said, oh, we're going to war with Iraq and Iraq could have smallpox and they could use it on us. And so it's really important that we use this vaccine and nobody, so I'm I dug through the literature and found these numbers, but no ordinary doctor will tell you this information. They don't know it. It's not, it doesn't get into the medical journals. Um, you have, I mean, you have to really look for it to find it. They said, we're not going to use the old vaccine. We know the old vaccine was dangerous. We've got this new ACAM 2000 vaccine we're going to use. And we have a vaccine, which they didn't call Genios in those days. They called it Imvimune. And if you had eczema or if you had certain autoimmune conditions, we will give you the Genios, which is less dangerous. Okay. So for ordinary Americans, they bought about 300 million doses of the ACAM 2000, and they ordered about 20 million doses of what's now called Genios. And I don't even think either of these were licensed at the time, but I'm not sure. This is even before the days when emergency use authorizations existed in law. Okay. okay. So this is 2003. So they start vaccinating doctors, nurses, and first responders in 2003. And they only get to 30 or 40,000 and everybody says no more because there were so many heart attacks, myocarditis, heart failure, sudden deaths. And if you go back to those days, you can see that CDC was publishing articles in their journal, the MMWR, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Review, talking about what was happening to people. Who, who got vaccinated and they were studying it intently. And in a few months, the whole program fizzled out. So that's what happened in 2003. So these basically smallpox vaccines sat there. And I'm not sure if anything happened to them between 2003, 2004, and 2017. I just don't, well, I do know something. The ACAM 2000 vaccine kept being sold. It had about four different owners because nobody liked it. You know, a company would take it on and they'd study it, they'd, you know, and they'd sell it. So it had four owners and the final owner is Emergent Biosolutions, the anthrax vaccine manufacturer, who bought it from Sanofi right immediately at the time that Robert Cadillac was nominated to be the assistant secretary of health for preparedness. And so that was in 2017 at the beginning of the Trump administration. And, the, and they did that because Cadillac then directed contracts to emergent biosolutions, incredible contracts for this smallpox vaccine. So he started buying loads of it. He gave them a contract for twice the number of doses that Sanofi had initially been contracted for at twice the per dose price. 
Now, why would he do that? Well, he did that because he had both been a consultant and a partner to the founder and main shareholder of Emergent Biosolutions, Fuad El-Hibri. So presumably he was getting kickbacks. There are also questions about whether the CIA had something to do with both Cadillac and the company Emergent Biosolutions and Fuad El-Hibri. Now, Cadillac was involved in the anthrax business too, wasn't he? I mean, his name came up during after the 9-11 follow-on anthrax attacks. Didn't his name come up in some way? He's been uh, involved in a lot of these tabletop exercises, you know, claiming that biodefense is, is something necessary. We have to spend money on it. So for at least 20 years, he's been doing that. And he uh, was also a staffer for Senator Richard Burr, who's a senator who's big on biodefense and pharma. And uh, he basically, and so Cadillac supposedly wrote the law that created the ASPR position, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness, and also apparently it's claimed wrote the law that created the National Strategic Stockpile, which is a collection, a $7 billion collection of drugs, vaccines, ventilators, masks, gowns, et cetera, um, to prepare us for bioterrorism and pandemics. And so once he became the assistant secretary, he then uh, made efforts to move the national strategic stockpile, which cost about a billion dollars a year to keep replenishing to his office rather than being under the CDC where it had been before. And he was successful in that. And it was in that way, he gained control over another billion dollars a year in spending. Wow. At that point, Emergent, so in 2017, Emergent um, bought the ACAM 2000 vaccine. But the original company, which was another startup small company called Bavarian Nordic, had had this other vaccine that was supposed to be safer, that was a two dose vaccine and supposedly did not replicate in your body like the ACAM 2000. It was called Imvimune, was the original brand name and its generic name was MVA-BN, which stood for modified vaccinia. So vaccinia is the, the virus, vaccinia Ankara-Bavarian Nordic. In 2017, the federal government gave that company a contract for 30 some billion, about $40 billion to um, complete their facility for finishing. So when you, you make vaccine in bulk and then you go through a process called fill and finish in which you break it down and put it into vials. Okay. And so they gave, the federal government gave the company money to, um, do that step. And then in 2019, January of 2019, the federal government gave them about 40 million for each of these contracts. And that was to conduct a phase three trial in humans to get the Genios, what then became Genios vaccine licensed, the Bavarian Nordic, the safer so-called vaccine. So for some reason, and maybe it was because of Cadillac, um, these contracts, but this was not to Cadillac's favorite company. This was to the competitor, Bavarian Nordic. 
after apparently the vaccine was sitting on ice frozen for all these years because they had a 2007 contract to create 20 million doses. Okay, so 20 million doses probably sat after getting rid of how many million after getting rid of perfectly good doses of the original New York strain, right? right? Because this is just a boondoggle. It's a way to spend money yeah. to, with favored corporations. So um, this vaccine then went through a process of clinical trials. And of course, there's no smallpox anywhere. So you, it's a smallpox vaccine. We can't test it for smallpox. So they said, well, what can, what can we do? Um, there's an, something called the animal rule, which says you can test it in animals, but only if you can show that the response in the animals is gonna be equivalent to the response in humans. Well, they couldn't show that, but they tested it in animals anyway. What could, were they gonna test it against? They tested it against monkey pox and rabbit pox. And they said, wow, you know, Junios protects animals against monkey pox and rabbit pox. So it must be good. And FDA gave it a license. And it, when they tested it in humans, of course, they had to worry about myocarditis because at this point, everybody knew about the incredibly high rate of myocarditis in, the, in its competitor, the AKM2000 that we had 300 million doses for. But what they did was they tested it sneakily and FDA allowed them to do so. So it, instead of testing shortly, so what happened uh, to people with COVID vaccine, they'd get the vaccine and on average, they would the second dose and on average, they'd get myocarditis within four days. Sometimes even the day they got the second dose, they would have symptoms. So what these people did was we're not gonna look we're not gonna check your cardiac enzymes until a month has gone by. <laughs> Even then they got a lot of elevated cardiac enzymes and they got a lot in two of their studies and they got a lot of EKG changes. And what they did was they blew off the EKG changes and said it was determined that they were not significant. And they, um, ignored, FDA let them ignore the elevated troponin levels, the cardiac enzyme elevations, even though in these two smallish trials, in one 10% and in the other 18% of the subjects had elevated cardiac enzymes. Explain what that, what your heart muscle cells contain troponin. And they, if the cell dies, it releases the troponin and other things into the bloodstream. And so if you, so how we diagnosed heart attacks is you go to an ER with chest pain and we measure your troponin level and get an EKG. And there's certain EKG abnormalities that are diagnostic and an elevated troponin level. And we see the troponin goes up when you have a heart attack and then goes down within about two days. Oh. And so you can track the extent of the heart attack that way. And with myocarditis, you're also, you've got cardiac inflammation. You also are killing muscle cells in the heart. And so troponin goes up then. But, you know, you have to catch it when it's happening. If you go in with a heart attack four days later, you don't get an elevation of troponin. And so if you go in, after, you know, if you check your blood. You go in after later, the damage is done. Right. You don't see it. Wow. Um, so. F, you know, FDA pulled a trick just like they're doing now. Um, and they pulled a trick and is said, okay. Is that not illegal 
to, to yes it's a lot of what they're doing to is illegal much of the you're not allowed to use animal studies to claim a vaccine is efficacious unless you can show that there's some way to relate what happens in humans to what happens in animals and they didn't bother doing that so that's illegal but it was done it was done in 2019 you know the country's been getting more and more um especially these federal agencies ignoring existing law this whole aspect of making sure you don't test for the elevated troponin right. levels until exactly. after well, the events are over, knowing that, I mean, that's yes. unethical. Right. It's, it's, not only is it unethical, if, if FDA were ethical, they would say that's ridiculous. You can't get away with that. Go back to the drawing board. But what FDA said is okay. And you don't have to follow these people up. They said, well, we'll, we'll find out whether there's myocarditis based on routine surveillance, which means they can go to their doctors and maybe they'll notify us, you know, if there's myocarditis in the future. But the company was not told by FDA that they had to do follow ups on these people and find out what happened to them, which is crazy. OK, but that's what was done. So the vaccine set. So now so that was the Genios vaccine. Remember, in one little study, 10 percent had elevated cardiac enzymes. That's one in 10. And in the other study, 18 percent. That's one in six. And FDA gave it a license, a full license, not an EUA, in, in September, October of 2019, right before the pandemic. So what did they know that we don't? And of course, because it was tested against monkeypox and not smallpox, they called it a monkeypox and smallpox vaccine. They didn't do that for ACAM 2000, I'm not sure why, but they did it for Genios. And so now they have this, sudden onset of exploding monkeypox cases and and the CDC wants to use this stock of its Genios vaccine because it's never actually been able to test it before in humans to see if it works. So they want to know if it works. So they're scaring, you know, the the gay population and telling them, look, if you had an unprotected, uh, you know, intercourse or you you were with somebody who may have had monkeypox you know or you think you might be at risk if you live in an area that's if you live in new york city and you're a gay male you know go out and get a monkeypox vaccine well and now they've there are 10 regions and even though the united states has only had about 400 cases they have um, sent the vaccine out to multiple urban areas and cdc is was the only entity in the country that could do a monkeypox test and could only confirm a case. You couldn't get a case confirmed anywhere else. But now they've made whatever tests they have, we don't know how accurate it is, available to many labs throughout the country. So you can expect there's gonna be an, a lot of monkeypox cases diagnosed. Now, let's talk about monkeypox. It was claimed that in Africa, in the West African, strains 1% died from monkeypox and in the Congo strains 10% died from monkeypox. This turns out to be a load of hogwash, at least as far as the current vaccine. We don't we don't know, you know, Africa doesn't most of Africa does not I've spent a lot of time in Africa does not have good data on uh, cases and outcomes. So what we've seen in this monkeypox is there are now over 5000 cases diagnosed in in the west, most in Europe and also in Singapore and some other, and Taiwan, 
And as far as we know, where nobody... did all this monkeypox suddenly come from? Well, I will tell you that in a briefing that the WHO secretariat gave to their emergency preparedness committee last week, they acknowledged that they don't know where it came from. When they tried to find some of the original case zeros and figure out what their connection was to Africa or monkeys or whatever, they couldn't find one. What does that tell you? That is a red flag. You can't find where it came from. Well, maybe it came from somewhere strange. Maybe it was deliberately spread. Okay, there, but there's another red flag that it's not acting like monkey. Monkeypox was a rare disease. Now it was claimed that maybe it was getting less rare because Africans weren't getting vaccinated either for smallpox. But how many Africans had been vaccinated for smallpox originally? You know, probably not that many. So it's spreading very easy, well, relatively easily, not that easily. It's not airborne spread. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. There is a possibility of, of airborne spread um, if the liquid from the pox, you know, gets out and you're close to some, it's just like chicken pox, right? So you can get chicken pox if you don't touch a lesion, but there has to be, you know, a lot of it around. Um, so it, it barely spread. There was one outbreak in the United States. Um, I can't remember about 10, 15 years ago from imported rodents from Africa and it had in pet stores. So some people got it and there was almost no person to person spread and nobody died, okay? In this outbreak of 5,000 cases in the West, nobody died. And the number of pox, the number of blisters or pustules um, are few in these people. It's not like chicken pox where you get them all over your body. So just a few. So the people are not getting that sick. They're getting fever, malaise, you know, a flu-like illness and coming down with pox. And then they go away and they're better after several weeks. Um, the incubation period on average is about eight days. So the fact that it's spreading much more easily than we think that it spread before and and that the index cases didn't seem to have an Africa, you know, rodent monkey connection um, suggests that this monkeypox too is very likely to have come from a lab just like COVID did. And Omicron also probably came from a lab since it did not derive from any of the prior uh, versions of COVID that have been sequenced and there have been I don't know, maybe millions sequenced, but you know, hundreds of thousands at a minimum have been sequenced and Omicron came out of nowhere, very different than all the others. So, um, you know, it's not hard to create these strains, um, but here's the important thing for people to be aware of is that it's, if it's not making you that sick, you know, and almost nobody dies of chickenpox. In the United States, one child dies of chickenpox a year, you know, and we have wow. 75 million children. And, and we have a lot of immunocompromised children and they get chickenpox and they survive. So, um, you know, if you're looking at a disease that's gonna make you sick for, you know, one to four weeks and you're gonna survive it and you might have a little scar from a pox, but that's it. Why do you need a vaccine that's never been proven to work 
that the CDC is very anxious to test. Deja vu all over again, Meryl. Yes. All right, let me tell you a new part of the scam. CDC has been urging all these people, if you had you know, sex with someone you didn't know, blah, 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 if you could be at high risk. Well, it turns out the Genios vaccine is a two-dose vaccine. And according to the label, which is the legal document about how it works, you're not immune until six weeks after you start the course. So you take one now, you come back in a month, and then two weeks after that, they say at that point, you should be immune, they hope. Okay, but so CDC saying, well, if you had intercourse with someone in the last two weeks, go get your vaccine. Well, how is that going to help if I'm not going to be immune until six weeks later? So they're basically creating this scare campaign without telling people how the vaccine actually works. They don't tell them, they're saying it's 85% effective. They have no clue. It has never been used against monkeypox before. Again. You'd have Is to that take a criminal a offense of any kind to just yeah. lie like that and tell force people to take something that could possibly cause myocarditis. And I think it it probably is a uh, an offense that you could take them to court on if you had an adverse reaction because the label is a legal document that the manufacturer and the FDA have agreed upon tells you the facts about the vaccine. And if CDC is lying about that legal document, I think that you do have a case. This could also be a case of fraud, waste, and abuse. You know? Absolutely. You're peddling something that you really don't know how efficacious it is. And it has been shown to be dangerous. Uh, you know, there's some statistics on that and you're completely ignoring that. I can't believe they're I can't believe this is happening again. I I know I was very suspicious when all of a sudden monkeypox bursts on the scene and it it popped up boop, 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 in all right. these different places all at once. And I thought to myself, well, that's weird. Where's ground zero here? It seems there seems to be so many of them. Exactly. The only way one. you can have that many ground zeros is if somebody takes that thing in a test tube or something. I mean, this is what I'm thinking. Exactly. And it happens just as everybody's um, lost interest in COVID and has learned that the COVID vaccines don't work. Then this other thing comes up to push a new vaccine. And as I said, two dose, you know, are they giving up that they're not going to be able to get as many booster doses into us and they want to inject us with a certain volume of stuff? Because another thing happened this year, about six months ago, CDC came up with this plan to vaccinate all Americans up to age 60 with three doses of hepatitis B vaccine. Hepatitis B vaccine is a risk only if you, um, you know, sexual transmission or uh, use IV drugs, basically. Those are the risk factors for hepatitis B. There's no reason most Americans should be vaccinated for it. Medical professionals get vaccinated because of needle sticks. Right. So I've had many hepatitis B vaccines, but there is, I'm sure, no reason for you to, to get such a, a vaccine. Right. But CDC wanted to start a program for all of these Americans who hadn't had it before to get it. And now the monkeypox appears. So that's five doses of vaccine they're, they're looking at promulgating. Since we're talking about vaccines, I've read a really scary statistic recently that some Chinese researchers have discovered that since 2017, autism is up 
in children. Yes. So is I that connected to vaccines? I do think a lot of autism is connected to vaccines. And that is the autism that appears not, you know, in the first few months of life, but appears after a shot. And most commonly after the measles, the MMR or MMRV vaccine, which is usually given at about 12 months, 12 to 15 months. And a child who was had language, some up to 50 words usually at that age they may have, and uh, they lose their language and they stop making eye contact. Those children who regress after a few days after a shot or a week after a shot, those are the um, vaccine autism cases. Now, there are um, some kids who regress after a thimerosal containing vaccine. And the, so what the is thimerosal? Thimerosal is um, a compound that's made up half by weight of mercury. Oh. And so some vaccines contain that. It, it kills bacteria and viruses. Supposedly, it's used as a preservative in some vaccines. It's also used in, um, what's it called? If, if a woman is RH negative and has an RH positive baby. I've had this experience. So yeah. did I. And um, so you are given a, um, an injection of something to stop you making antibodies against the, the baby, which could kill future babies that you might have. And um, that material contains thimerosal. So you're getting, I think, a dose of 50 micrograms of mercury when you have that injection. Wow. Um, and so what are the causes of autism? There are probably multiple, but certainly vaccines have a, a significant place, a, a role to play and have not been acknowledged. And I guess that you can say the federal agencies, especially the CDC have been covering up the autism epidemic that is related to vaccinations because they felt it would harm their vaccine program. And the CDC, you know, CDC buys half the childhood vaccines used in the United States from manufacturers. They spend almost $5 billion a year on vaccine purchases and they give them to all the children on Medicaid and uh, children at Indian, you know, hospitals um, on reservations and certain other programs. So, so if, if you don't have commercial insurance, we, the United States government will vaccinate your child for free, even though it you know, supposedly costs several thousand dollars to fully vaccinate a child now with the 70 or more doses. $2,200 apparently. 2,200, but that was in 2014. Oh. And so now it's eight years later and everything's gone up a lot and we've added some doses to that schedule. So since 2014, so I think we'd probably be looking at a minimum of 3000 per child, probably more like 3,500. Isn't it time that we start looking, doing studies on possible connections between autoimmune illnesses and this constant vaccination of kids. I mean, do kids really need all those vaccines? There have been a very few studies paid for privately 
of vaccinated versus unvaccinated children. And it certainly looks like autoimmune conditions, for instance, allergy, are much higher in the vaccinated children than the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated, allegedly, according to these trials, and um, there was a guy at the, a professor at, um, I think Jackson State University in, in Jackson, Mississippi, who published one of these studies. And what happens is they try to retract them. So his got retracted and then it got republished in another journal. But um, the, the federal agencies you know, and the industry do not want studies like this to be extant. They don't want them available and accessible for people to read. And the federal feds, none of the federal agencies pay for any of these studies. How many you know, vaccines does a child need? Well, we're vaccinating all our kids, or it's recommended, with two doses of a meningococcal vaccine, and they may add another, a new kind of meningococcal vaccine. We're vaccinating with the MEN-A, which is a four-strain vaccine, and they want to add a men, possibly a men meningococcal B. We're giving these kids two doses, and here in Maine, we might have you know one case a year in kids, and the vaccine only works for a few years, if it works, there aren't enough cases to actually know what the efficacy is. I mean, when you have, when you have only less than 100 cases a year in the United States in children of this meningococcal disease, you can't tell whether the vaccine works. I don't even understand the measles vaccine because everybody, everybody gets the measles and gets over them. And, you know, your immune system has to does it, doesn't this give get used to things. System so, a workout so that it'll be stronger and be able to handle viruses better? So I think that is true to an extent. It was said when I looked at the literature, and this is all pre-1955, basically, literature, before there were ICUs, before you're giving people IVs, you know, at the drop of a hat, um, it was said that one in 4,000 children who got measles died. I don't know if that's true, but that was the highest death rate for any of the childhood diseases. So measles was the worst. Um, and so it may be reasonable to that. If you have a safe measles vaccine, it may be reasonable. Um, diphtheria, you know, we have one case of diphtheria in the United States diagnosed maybe every two years. So do we need a vac diphtheria vaccine? No. You know, not probably not. Um, what about pertussis? So the DPT is diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis. Well, pertussis, the vaccine doesn't work anymore. Um, it was changed about 25 years ago to a less, the, the old vaccine was more dangerous. It did kill children. Um, this one is less dangerous, but not very effective. And the pertussis um, bacteria have mutated to uh, escape vaccine protection. So um, we either need a new pertussis vaccine or no pertussis vaccine. You know, we have pertussis outbreaks all the time, and, you know, in the vaccinated as well as the unvaccinated. So, but tetanus, I mean, you know, the rusty needle story, if you get an abscess that's dirty, you can potentially grow tetanus in it and tetanus can kill you. And yet in the United States, we only have about 30 tetanus cases a year in the whole country. Um, 
said to be mostly in elderly people who weren't fully vaccinated. I think it's reasonable to vaccinate against tetanus, but you don't have to vaccinate a two-month-old. A two-month-old right. is not playing outside in dirty conditions. Right, right now, right. we're giving them that vaccine at two, four, six, 18 months, five years, 12 years, you know, and then with every pregnancy, we're giving that DPT vaccine. Somebody like you or a committee of people like you should come up with the new recommended uh, vaccine schedule. Honestly, because it's madness. It's madness jabbing these kids every five seconds. What I do is I, when I was allowed to see patients, <laughs> which was up until six months ago, I would yeah. tell patients what I thought the benefits and risks were for each of the vaccines and let them choose. Um, I, I would urge them sometimes for a vaccine, but I, I mean, vaccines like Gardasil, absolutely unnecessary. The meningococcal, I mean, a lot of things could probably be treated um, effectively with other means. For example, it turns out that uh, getting zinc in, zinc in the test tube will kill SARS coronaviruses, right? Zinc alone in a test tube, in, in tissue culture. Yeah. Well, it also kills, you have to get it into the cells. You can't, you know, have it in the bloodstream. It's got to get in. So you have to take something like hydroxychloroquine or a zinc ionophore to get adequate levels into the cell. But it turns out, at least in tissue culture, when you get it into the cell, it, it's also killing flu viruses. Oh, wow. It's also killing RSV viruses, which is a major killer of very young infants up to three months or six months old a major killer in the united states a lot all most of the babies in icus you know are rsv infections it's a it's a respiratory respiratory syncytial virus and so if we looked at these cheap unpatentable remedies we could avoid a lot of so you kids. could give your baby zinc Yes. Like intravenously. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Or orally. You can make a, you know, a slurry of it and put it in a bottle. Yeah. But nobody wants to do these studies because it's going to interfere with pharma, which wants an RSV vaccine. What you do in terms of explaining the pros and cons of vaccines before you give them to your patients, that's so rare. I know, um, my daughter in high school, and I really didn't want to give it to her. They wouldn't let her go to school if she didn't have a hep B. Yes, that's, that's criminal. Because, you know? The, you know, again, if she's not using IV drugs and she's not having unprotected intercourse, exactly. I mean, it was, risk. It was, and it's uh, a dangerous vaccine. Hep B is one of the more dangerous vaccines. Well, and yeah, another thing you can do is just if you want to get if you think everybody needs a tetanus shot, and I'm not sure they don't, I, I don't know. Um, I think you just wait, because a one year old is not going to be exposed to tetanus, you know, right. so you, you start it later, and that you give an older child the same vaccines you you're giving to a baby, and they're not going to become autistic, because the brain's already developed enough, they may have a reaction but it won't be autism if you start at five years old, say. Right. Um, the other thing about avoiding tetanus is so if you have an abscess, you just have to clean off the abscess. You have to get rid of an abscess. You incise and 
you get rid of pus, you know, wherever there's pus, you cut, you, you put a needle in it, you squeeze it out, you clean it off. You can use an antibiotic ointment. Um, there are so many things that can be done uh, to uh, prevent tetanus in a, in a small child. I want to talk about this related biological uh, products advisory committee meeting on the COVID boosters. You, know, you were talking about how people are getting fed up. I mean, clearly now this, this constant call for boosters has exposed the fact that these vaccines are not working. So could you talk about this meeting? I have to say this was the worst um, meeting I've ever attended. I've probably attended at least 10 or 15 of these meetings over the years. And these are uh, FDA convenes an expert panel, uh, almost all MDs, maybe a few PhDs, um, a group that can be up to 20 people, and then presents data to them and asks them to consider certain questions. This is a, a basically a requirement the, the federal government requires um, its, its agencies to have, you know, independent advisory committees. Now, I don't think the FDA most of the time cares about what these people say and uh, from what I've seen. And I don't, uh, so I think a lot of this is for show anyway. And FDA gets to appoint the members of its advisory panel. So it only appoints people that it knows, you know, will give them the right answer. In this case, so there had been a, an earlier meeting, which I also attended. So you can watch them on Zoom now uh, on April 6, where they talked about boosters and FDA presented the panel saying, what kind of boosters should we make for the fall for COVID? And the panel was like, are you kidding me? You're asking us, you're, you're the one with the data. You're not giving us data. You're telling us you don't have any data and you're asking us to predict the future, what we should, you know, we can't do that. And they said also at, during the April 6th meeting, you have not shown us um, correlates of protection. So you can't uh, relate the animal experiments to uh, a human efficacy. And you can't relate antibody levels to human efficacy because you don't have a correlation of protection between the antibody. So for example, in, in Israel, in uh, Sheba Hospital, they gave doctors and nurses the fourth dose, the second booster, and their, they measured their antibody levels. They went up 10 times. And then they measured the efficacy of the fourth booster over the next couple of months. And they found the Moderna had 12% efficacy and Pfizer had 30%. So even though the antibody levels went up, they were probably measuring the wrong antibody. Who knows? They didn't, didn't correlate to protection. And so FDA knows this, their advisory committee knows this. And so, so they come back. So in April, they said, well, okay, we'll try to figure something out and we'll bring you back in June and we'll discuss this again. So they brought them back on June 28th and they, and they presented them with what data they had which was complete nonsense because they said, well, you know, our, our vaccines don't work against Omicron. They don't work well against Omicron, but we believe the original vaccines prevent hospitalizations and deaths. And that's what we really care about. And we know these vaccines work, the existing vaccines against the Wuhan strain, which, you know, is gone, doesn't exist on the world anymore. But we know these vaccines work well to prevent hospitalizations and deaths. So that was their first, um, the first claim and everybody 
accepted it. Nobody argued. Okay, I guess it does. Well, it do you know, it doesn't. We know that now. But this is a claim that the federal government, since they've lost the, the argument that it's going to prevent cases and prevent transmission, they've been hanging on to this argument. Well, it doesn't do that, but it's preventing hospitalizations and deaths. Might have looked like that for another month or two, but for the last three months, it's been clear in a number of countries it doesn't do that either. Certainly, the UK data are, are very clear. Um, so then they said, well, since this vaccine works so well, we, we want to keep it in, in the vaccine. So we'll stick with the old strain, but we're going to add a new one. Well, the only thing we've tested is the Omicron BA1. And the companies presented some data about their BA1 vaccine, which was all, virtually all antibody data, none of it efficacy data. And they said, here's the BA1 data. Okay. So we know that the antibodies are not correlated to protection. And we know that BA1 is just about extinct also. What we've got now is Omicron BA4 and Omicron BA5. So show us some data for that. Well, we don't have any data for that. So FDA said, well, look, advisory, advisory committee, should we include an Omicron version in the new boosters for the fall? And the committee had to vote. And so they voted, I think it was 18 to two. Yes. And two people, including Paul Offit, said no. Paul Offit oh was on the right side of the yeah. issue. Yeah. And so the next day, FDA said, okay, we're, at, we're telling the manufacturers to make, a make new vaccines with an Omicron four or five or both and the original Wuhan strain. And we're gonna use both. Who is going to take these boosters? Anybody who can be conned into it, apparently. Who is going to take it? I mean, the FDA told the manufacturers, you know, start generating some data, do some clinical trials, make these vaccines. And so where are we with COVID? I, I'm not hearing, you know, people going to hospital in in droves i'm not hearing i'm not hearing things are seem back to normal in in one sense and all i'm hearing is you know boosters 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 and jab those babies we got to get the kids vaccinated even though the science i mean you can talk about the science for the kids shows that it's right. contraindicated for right. children and particularly babies so Absolutely contraindicated for children. Um, and I would refer you to this Children's Health Defense letter sent to FDA several weeks ago. It shows not only is all the science, you know, we cite a lot of science in that letter and I helped write it, um, but we also show that FDA had published its own requirements for approving, for issuing an EUA for COVID vaccines. And FDA ignored all its own requirements in issuing the EUA for these for young children. They, they didn't meet any of the standards FDA had earlier established and they just ignored it. So, um, so kids don't need it. In February, CDC said that 75% of children were already immune, had already been infected. And in uh, April, they said based on blood samples, 95% of adults either had immunity from vaccination or from having had COVID. So there's very few people, but but if you got COVID before the Omicron version appeared in November, December, 
you don't have, you only have very partial immunity to the Omicron versions because there are 35 to 50 new mutations in Omicron. I yeah, told you, it came out in the Omicron version deadly? It's much weaker. So if you look at the New York Times, which publishes daily the CDC data on cases, deaths, hospitalizations, and tests, you'll see that the cases are up a bit, hospitalizations are up, deaths are flat. Very few people are dying from COVID. In a good study um, done in children, they found that there are only, for, for every you know thousand cases of Omicron compared to Delta in children, only 15% as many needed to be in an ICU or on a ventilator. 15% with Omicron compared to Delta. So it's a generally mild disease, but it, it can be severe in some people. It definitely should be treated early. So you yes. don't get any complications later and you get over it quicker. It absolutely should be treated. And there's still no word from CDC or FDA on early treatment protocols. No, there, there's bullshit. There, the, the government has purchased Paxlovid and um, Molnupiravir, given both of them EUAs, FDA, and they don't work. So with Paxlovid, there's a lot of rebound. You take it for five days and then the COVID comes back. That just happened to Tony Fauci last week. It happened to David Ho, who is a very famous AIDS researcher who designed the, the current protocols for AIDS patients. He, he, he's in New York. He got a rebound after Paxlovid. It doesn't work. And then Molnupiravir causes mutations, which could be mutations in the virus, could give you new variants, um, and can potentially cause mutations in the humans as well because of the way it works. So the government has spent billions of dollars on these so-called early treatment drugs and neither one works or should be used. They're, they're, neither one is very safe either. Molnupiravir is less safe, but um, President Biden mentioned them in his State of the Union address and promised that Americans could go into a drugstore get a test and walk out with a bottle of these meds. Oh. And so they're still pushing them. And the United States government is setting up little clinics, pop up clinics, presumably manned by a nurse practitioner or somebody, you go in there and get a test and you walk out with a prescription or a bottle. So they're still trying to use these bad drugs and withhold the ivermectin, the hydroxychloroquine and vitamin D and zinc, which actually work. Tell me about your case, Meryl. Are you able to talk about what's going on with that and whether you're any closer? You, were, you know, we're still at the beginning. I mean, my, my attorney had a status conference with a judge this morning. I haven't heard what happened, but that's just to set up when, when do we go to trial. Uh, so there's two cases. There's one with me as the plaintiff suing the medical board for having abused me, you know, uh, to stop the um, neuropsychiatric evaluation and the demands for more charts and demands for other things. And the other case is the medical board against me. And we're having a status conference later this month on, on that, which is going to be interesting because the board meets only one day a month. So they will give you, they wanted to have two days in which they heard, they haven't heard I've never spoken to the board. I've never answered a question in front of the board. So they just immediately suspended my license without meeting me or knowing anything really about me. They were told to 
cock and bull story about me. And they know, never the interviewed you directly. Never interviewed me. Wow. Um, heard stories about my website, you know, no patient complaints, no allegations that any patients were harmed, but it was political. So they, um, so they immediately suspended my license. Yeah, but because- don't they have their own rules for they when do. They do, they in. have rules. And so they have a bunch of criteria for what, you know, how bad a doctor has to be in order to immediately suspend their license. So I didn't meet any of the criteria. Of course, I hadn't done anything wrong ever. And so what they were left with is I must be crazy. And that's why they ordered the neuropsych exam with their own doctor who would then pronounce me crazy. And so that was the basis. How could they even they say- didn't even, They must- didn't have an allegation. They didn't, they didn't say I'd done anything crazy. Right. They didn't say, you know, no patient said I'd done anything. I weird. mean, that craziness that they allege craziness has not expressed itself anywhere. So what's it based on exactly? Oh, so, so they wrote a nine page um, letter, which I was handed at the end of their meeting, which basically cited things I'd said in interviews. You know, I'd have oh, to be wow. crazy to say the vaccine didn't work. I'd have to be crazy to say masks don't work. It was that that sort of thing. I've never had a malpractice case. You know, I had one board complaint and then the patient who complained apologized to me because they didn't understand why I was treating them that way. You know, so, um, you know, there's nothing. There's nothing for them to go on. But they were told, you know, it was a political thing because they had to make the psychiatric allegation in order to do the immediate suspension and that enabled them to get national publicity the next day. I mean, there was a publicist. I wasn't, I didn't pay a publicist to spread stories about me in the San Francisco Chronicle and the Miami Herald and Newsweek. I mean, it was crazy. I hope it goes by really quickly. I really do. Cause I know it's a real burden for you and you're doing amazing work. And I thank you for coming on today and giving us an update on what you've been doing and noticing with this crazy, as you call it, the dirty vaccine wars. It's really what it is. Yeah. Thanks, Meryl. Hey, thank you, Christina.